Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you today. I've been away on holiday, and it's good to be back at church and good to have you here with us this morning on this beautiful, beautiful Sunday morning here in San Francisco, and I hope where you are too this morning. Uh, as I say, worship is a creative and collective and collaborative experience, and so I want to offer my appreciations for those involved in bringing our worship service to you this morning. We want to thank our musicians, Andres Farah, Miwa Steger, Rachel Lane at our organ, our singers and song leaders, Brielle Nielsen and Mark Sumner. Thanks to our worship associate this morning, Don Weepert. Thanks to our technical crew, Jonathan Silk on sound, Eric Shackelford on camera, and to Joe Chapeau, who will be managing our chat this morning on the live stream. Thank you to you all for your good works this morning. I also want to thank Amy Kelly and Judy Payne for this garden of flowers that we have with us this morning. So while we can't be outside, it has a feeling that we're really out in nature and surrounded by beauty. So thank you to the two of you. And thank to, thanks to Les James and Alex Dar, who will be managing our coffee hour chat this morning, which you are welcome to join uh, following the service. And if this is your first time with us today, uh, you'll find in the chat a link to the order of service and information about getting connected to their church through signing up for our uh, newsletter, Zoo, uh, The Flame, as well as information about uh, ongoing events and activities here at the church, and we hope you'll take part in those. We begin each Sunday as we have since the start of the pandemic by lighting a candle And this candle is just a reminder that we are gathered here in spirit until the time that we are able to be here together in community with one another. Please join me in our opening hymn number 143, found in your order of service. <laughs> Breathe 
light this chalice with a, for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Again, welcome. My name is Allison Jacks, Associate Minister here at First Unitarian Universalist Church. Again, if this is your first time watching or visiting with us today, thanks so much for joining us. And again, you can follow along in the order service that's found in the chat, and you can click on the link as well. Uh, and please feel free to sign up for our newsletter, The Flame, which will get you information about what's the happenings and events going on at the church, as well as our uh, newsletter, First News, that comes out monthly. In the order of service, you'll see a list of upcoming events and ways to get connected to our community. And again, please join us for the Zoom coffee hour following the service. And if you'd like to know more about our church activities, um, please visit our website. That's another wonderful place to get information about our church and its happenings. And if you've been visiting for a while, we'd like to invite you to our new UU class, an opportunity for people who've been visiting our church while live streaming and want to get to know us better. Reverend Vanessa and I will be leading a two-session class uh, September 22nd and 29th. You'll find information about registering for that in the order of service, and we would love to have you join us. So this concludes our announcements for this morning, and so let us center ourselves for worship by singing our meditation on breathing. The words are found in your order of service, and you can listen to our song leader sing it through for the first time, and then join us for a few times as we sing together. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. When I breathe in, when I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, when I breathe out, I breathe out love. When I breathe in, when I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, when I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. When I breathe in, when I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, when I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. When I breathe in, when I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, when I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. Join us in repeating the covenant together, followed by the doxology. Love is the spirit of the church and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom, and to help one another.
recognizing there is human suffering all over this world in the course of natural disasters and human catastrophes. We ring our gong today in honor of five such places of suffering and struggle. We ring our gong first as we have since July 2019 in honor of the seven children who lost their lives in federal custody in our detention camps. And we let it ring symbolically, standing for all adults who have lost their lives in these camps. Those who remain in the camps, many separated from their families and many now infected by COVID-19 or at great risk of infection. We ring our gong additionally once for the losses of life due to COVID-19. This week, over 719,000 have died of COVID globally and 161,000 in the United States alone. We hold in our hearts all these losses and also to all who continue to risk their lives to provide essential services, those suffer from loss of job, whose lives are especially vulnerable to the disease and all whose isolation and struggle through grief and loneliness is harder the longer this pandemic continues. And we ring our gong for a ninth time in remembrance of those who lost their lives in Beirut and the thousands killed, injured due to the horrific explosion. And in memory of those who died during the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki 75 years ago this week. On August 6, 1945, the bomb Little Boy destroyed Hiroshima Three days later, Fat Man devastated Nagasaki. Death estimates range between 130 and 226,000 people, most of them who were civilians, and it remains the only use of nuclear weapons in armed conflict. We pray for the dead and all those who suffer from the unholy destruction brought on by war. Let us commit ourselves this day and every day to the work of peace. May we keep those we have named and their loved ones in our thoughts and prayers. And may we ease the tide of human suffering this coming week, however we can.
invite you now into our time of spoken and silent meditation. The words are from an ancient Tibetan prayer. And I invite you silently to recite each line after it is spoken. Let your eyes rest. Let your breathing come naturally. May you be at peace. May your heart remain open. May you awaken to the light of your own true nature. May you be healed. May you be the source of healing for all beings. May I be at peace. May my heart remain open. May I awaken to the light of my own true nature. May I be healed. May I be a source of healing for all beings. May we be at peace. May our hearts remain open. May we awaken to the light of our own true nature. May we be healed. May we be a source of healing for all beings. Join me now in a time of silent meditation and prayer. Amen.
When I ponder the meaning of time, the truth is there is no meaning. It's just there. It is what it is. In physics, some see time having a span of 15 billion years. And at the end of the arc, the universe will no longer be here. Time is inexorable and deterministic. We don't choose when it begins for us, nor the events which affect us during our arc of life. There is a question within this about whether there is a place for choice and free will. Or is all behavior conditioned by survival and adaptation changes in our brain relating to the behaviors which helped us survive in ancient times? In each of our lives, there are pivotal moments when our life path is significantly changed. I've had lots of those in 92 years. One of them that really sticks in my mind occurred during World War II. At that time, I was 14, a, bo a bewildered boy in a newly minted man's body. I remember fear and dramatic events like blackout curtains and air raid drills. Bursts of patriotic fervor were everywhere. We all had to do our part. I started with the Boy Scouts, earnestly collecting newspaper, metal, rubber, and volunteering in a ration book distribution center, ration books being a new event in our lives. Nationally, farm production of food was a problem. To, to, to remedy that, the country was pressed to create victory gardens in the lawns and backyards of city and suburban homes. Even Eleanor Roosevelt planted one in the White House lawn. At that time, 14, I lived in the house that my late grandfather had built on a one half acre plot in Brooklyn, New York. He built it in 1908. On land that it was originally farmed for over 300 years by Dutch settlers. They got their land by exterminating Canarsie Indians. One afternoon, I started poking a pitchfork, a pitchfork into some backyard turf with a vague idea I might be able to make a garden. I poked the next day and after that, and soon it became a commitment. <clears throat> Somehow, I knew I had to dig, dig holes, sending, and that, that it was important to send topsoil to the bottom of the hole. It was hard work. I wasn't very strong at first. With a rewarding rhythm, row after row, the plot grew to be 30 by 40 feet. The next stop was to hoe, rake, and set the soil for planting. At home, there was not much table conversation at any time. 
I thought there was little notice of what I was doing. They probably thought I wouldn't finish something characteristic of myself at that time. But, but I was proud when it, I finished and somewhat astonished at what I had created. But now I needed help, creating a garden, getting seeds, doing a layout. And my father stepped in. Seeds were purchased and we figured out where to plant. Sharing this time with him was one of the warmest moments in my relationship with him. Of course, the seeds grew. I watered them and pulled the weeds and the vegetables flourished abundantly from summer to frost. My father kept that garden going till 1968. It is reported, at the, it is reported now that 30% of the food that Americans consumed during the heyday of the war was due to victory gardens. I remember this pivotal point so well because it was the first time I felt I had agency to take responsibility and to create something which made a difference in the world and to the national effort. But considering free will, was I making the garden as a rite of passage to establish my manhood in the community? Or did I have, an ancient, or did I have ancient reflexive memories about how farmers 50,000 years ago planted and replaced the hunter-gatherers that preceded them? Or was it because I knew in my bones that survival depended on supporting my community against outside danger? And I responded to this danger. We will gratefully receive your gifts and donations in support of the work and mission of this church community. You can find the link to donate on our uh, live stream chat and in the order of service. We will take this morning's offering. I was asked to reflect a little bit on uh, the world and, uh, and on the fact that it's 250 years since Beethoven was born. Uh, I think there's a, also, to add to that, there's, uh, I'll be saying a little, a uh, few words from Brian Greene's uh, Until the End of Time, but uh, to come back to Beethoven and 250 years of, of his life, I cannot believe we're still playing his music. It is so uh, absolutely magical and uh, so I feel so fortunate that I have been asked to perform uh, for everyone here and I feel so lucky that I get to have music with a, such a wonderful pianist and uh, I think as time goes on and as we grow older and Personally, how I am feeling during this extraordinary time, I get so overclumped about it, is that I'm being more in touch with my emotions, and these emotions get uh, transferred into uh, our music, and uh, this is kind of one of the few ways that we can bring the message around. Um, but uh, we, I think, uh, I, I think it's really cool that. Yeah, uh, I get to touch these emotions more and uh, get really upset and 
get angry and, and, and get to put them into us music that is so, so wonderful. And I cannot believe that we're still playing his music 250 years later because it obviously meant, it also obviously means that uh, he really put a lot of uh, emotion into his uh, work. And we're gonna be playing uh, his cello sonata, his fourth cello sonata in C major. I love C major, C major is a great key. Um, <laughs> But without, uh, uh, without further ado, I'm going to read you this uh, little passage from Brian Greene's Until the End of Time. And it really uh, expresses uh, and uh, touches uh, on, on the moment that we're in and the role that music uh, plays uh, right now for us and for so many. And for me, really, especially right now. And I'm all for Clef because it's really just a hard time. It's really just a hard time. But... Uh, here we go. This, this is the, the, the passage. Music can offer an immersion so enveloping that within just a few moments, it feels like we've stepped beyond time. Cellist and conductor Pablo Casals described the power of music to inform ordinary activities with spiritual fervor to give wings of eternity to that which is most ephemeral. It is the fervor that makes us feel part of something larger. Whether with the composer or fellow listeners, music invites connection. It is through such connection that the experience of music trans uh, transcends time. Uh, so without further ado, this is uh, uh, Beethoven's, uh, the introduction of Beethoven's uh, fourth cello sonata.
Reading from the End of Time by Brian Greene, Professor of Physics and Math at Columbia University. <clears throat> Make no mistake, we are all bags of particles, both mind and body, and the physical facts about the particles can fully address how they interact and behave. But such facts, the particular narrative, shed only monochrome light on the richly colored stories of how we navigate, how we humans navigate the complex world of thought, perception, and emotion. And when our perceptions blend thought and emotion, our experience steps further beyond the bounds of mechanistic explanations. We gain access to worlds otherwise uncharted. Our second reading comes from a book entitled On Creativity by David Bohm. David Bohm is, was a theoretical physicist whose work fo focused on the study of quantum mechanics. He writes, the ability to learn something new is based on the general state of the mind of a human being. It does not depend on special talents, nor does it only operate in special fields. But when it does operate, there is an undivided and total interest in what one is doing. Recall, for example, when you were a child learning to walk. You would put your whole being into it. Only this kind of wholehearted interest will give the mind energy needed to see what is new and different, especially when the latter seems to threaten what is familiar, precious, secure, or otherwise dear to us.
week ago today marked the 20th anniversary of my father's death, a potent and punctuated moment in time, a time in my life filled with beauty and sadness and grief. For the first time, I began to grasp the tr fragile transience of life, that our time here is limited and precious, and then it's gone. Late in his life, my father grew fascinated with the cosmic story of time and our place in it. And since his death, I've tried in my own way to pick up the threads and follow the story that captivated him. My father was a teacher and he loved to learn. Like a child learning to walk, he threw himself into a subject eager to understand. But when he struggled or hit a roadblock, he would pause and give his mind a rest, take a walk or play a game of solitaire or enjoy a small bowl of Hershey's chocolate chips. Restored, he would begin again. And so it seemed only right to bring a bowl with me in case during the course of our conversation, we need to relax and replenish along the way. So yes, in the end, we die. And our unique combination of you particles and me particles decompose, disperse, and begin their slow return to space. But let's not rush to the end. Today, our focus isn't so much about outer space, though we will touch upon it, but rather the, the inward journey how we see and understand ourselves and our place within the story of time. Being part and particle of the universe means we too are subject to the laws of physics and biology that literally hold us in place. But ours is an evolving story that brought mind into play, allowing us to think and reflect, emote, create, and imagine. We don't live outside the laws, but we are moved by them, giving shape and meaning to our lives. So as I said, this sermon isn't about outer space, but to help us understand our place in the story and fortify us for our inner journey, I wanna take a brief trip back to the Big Bang and explore the idea of entropy which plays a central role in our story. Entropy is how we measure the disbursement of energy. Prior to the Big Bang, the particle container holding the building blocks of the universe was resting in quiet meditation, a state of low entropy. All that time in tight quarters, the particles took a stretch, creating fiction and friction and heat, releasing their energy and blowing things wide apart. Particles flew willy-nilly across space, setting the story in motion, a high entropy state. Can I offer you some chocolate chips? Over the billions and billions of years, the stored up energy that set the particles in motion 
lost steam. While some particles traveled outbound, others regrouped and formed galaxies and stars and planets, and, and the universe took shape. Physicists help us understand what happened through the laws of thermodynamics, the conservation of energy, things coming together, low entropy, and the second law about things coming apart, high entropy. High entropy, we've learned, is the stronger of the two forces. Eventually, the story goes, all matter will disperse. Kind of, well, like a miracle, if you will. Except it's not. It's just how the laws of physics work. Brian Greene calls this energy, energy, energy dance the entropic two-step. And in between the two-step, under some improbable odds, life emerged. But you don't need a telescope to see the entropic two-step. Rather, you turn your attention inward. You, me, the chair you're sitting on, the tree outside your window are living proof of the entropic two-step at work. We are energy collectors and energy dispersers. But there's more to the story. We are familiar with the basic principles of evolution, how over billions of years, Earth spinning on an axis, heating up and cooling down, perfectly positioned to reap the benefits of the solar system and operating under the guidebook of physics, gave way to a single cell organism that formed the building blocks of all life. Those organisms created an extraordinary arrangement and complex patterns, giving shape to a collections of species which now number 8.7 million and counting. Out of all the particle arrangements and pattern making, cells were on the move, carrying information along the DNA and RNA highway, energy flowing in and out, collecting and dispersing, the dance of the entropic two-step. And all of that arranging and pattern making, the human species took shape, adapting to survive the elements and each other. As our numbers grew, language evolved, social networks formed, and we went about the business of setting down roots. And over the last 200,000 years, we've been wondering about what it means to be part of the cosmic tale. And we're still wondering. Time for a chocolate chip. While the physicalist story of how the universe took shape is a marvel, Brian Greene writes, deep mysteries call for clarity delivered through a collection of nested stories. We piece together the richest understandings, 
by approaching questions from a range of different perspectives. We don't just live in monochrome light. Science illuminates, but it doesn't tell the whole story. Yes, we are held together and governed by the physics of laws of physics and biology, but that doesn't mean we're stick in the muds, far from it. Our unique collection of particles have developed minds that allow us to, allow us to, reflect, and to reflect on our actions and be moved by those reflections. Our stories help explain and illuminate the cosmic journey, shape us and move us, spurring our, bright, our brains and par our particles, the brains, sorry, <laughs> spurring our delightful brain particles to move, sparking the imagination to new ways of seeing. While time travel is a thing of science fiction, our minds are capable of traveling the pathways that allow us to see the past and imagine the future. Whether memory and imagination are a result of adaptive survival needs or the fluff that emerges when you have too much time on your hands, it's still up for debate. Whatever the reason, we have evolved with minds that respond to the world around us compelling us on to become thinkers and makers, movers and shakers. Our collective stories about, are about our place in the universe have developed over the long course of human history, across cultures and disciplines, the sciences, the arts, religions, philosophies, psychology, they carry an energy that shapes our lives with both the power to bring us together or to tear us apart. This week I've been reflecting on the 75th anniversary of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. How scientists modeled a radioactive poisonous bomb using the core principles of the Big Bang harnessing energy to cause a cataclysmic reaction, a deadly and catastrophic version of the entropic two-step, whose reverberations are still in play. The use of atomic weapons has changed forever our understanding of how we relate to the story of time and our place in it. This week, New York Times reporters Ben Dooley and Hisaku Ueno wrote, the Hibakusha, as the, as the survivors of the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki are known in Japan, are an, are an increasingly precious resource. As their numbers fall, they and their supporters are being forced to envision what the disarmament movement will look like without the people who have put a human face to the cost of nuclear war. As the ranks shrink, it's, most important, it's more important than ever to ensure that the survivors' legacies carry on. Maika Nikeo, a professor of history at Nagasaki University, says, 
we have to think about how to acknowledge the history, how to memorialize it, and how to pass it down to future generations. We can't revise time or reverse it, only learn from it and keep the story alive. In a room full of his peers, 17-year-old Niho Ibishaki asks an important question. How will young people learn the truth about Hiroshima now? He learned about the horror of this from his great uncle, a survivor of the Hiroshima bombing who lost his eyesight due to the blast. Now he is sharing that testimony with his high school peace studies class. He says, I would like to do something that I can to keep the stories alive for the future. Working with his school's computer club, they are working with virtual reality to create an application showing where survivors were at the moment of impact. Niho is keeping the story alive harnessing the energy of the past in hopes of helping us better understand the story and give shape to the future. Don Wiepert created a garden and shared it with us, nourishing bodies, hearts, minds, and souls. Over 200 years ago, 250 as we learned this morning, Beethoven gave us music that allows us to fly on imagined wings of eternity. Or to take the mathematician's point of view, Brian Greene reflects, the human capacity to respond with great variety is a testament to the core principles. The entropic two-step orderly clumps form out of a disordered world and stabilize to produce light and planets and life. Evolution explains how in favored environments, life literally takes shape. Particles coalesce into patterns and facilitate complex behaviors. Collections that require further capacities to think and learn, communicate, and cooperate, imagine, predict, and enhancing our chances of survival. That calls for a chip. While the laws of physics come down hard against the idea of free will, a will that lives beyond the bounds of physical reality, we are not without our freedom. It seems to me, at least, that our brains took shape to delight in our ability to move back and forward in the story of time. We are like a pinball in the pinball machine, mind and body whizzing through space, touching down on ideas and experiences that light us up from within. But let's not forget, life will come to an end, and the universe that we've come to know as our own will one day, many, many days away, will cease to exist.
A month before my father died, we gathered at our house in Maine to celebrate my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. My father had grown frail and thin. He wore a worried look on his face. While he didn't speak much of death, my sense was it was clearly on his mind. We had bought them a cherry tree to be planted on the property, a chance to see new life take root. Sitting on the porch, my father asked for our attention. Out of his pocket, he pulled a piece of paper with a copy of his favorite poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock by T.S. Eliot. These are the words that have stayed with me, bringing the moment back to life and move me still. I grow old, I grow old. I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. Shall I part behind, my, shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare to eat a peach? I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. Here, in this timeless love poem, I find my father. My dear fellow travelers, out of the vast collection of particles that flew into space and the forces that have drawn us together, here we are. We look to the stars to help us see where we came from, but ours is an inward journey where we pick up the threads and stitch together our story of time. Let's make the best of the time that we've got. Let us hold on to this, the enduring of love, the persisting of hope, 
the remembering of joy, the offering of gratitude, the receiving of grace, and the blessings of peace. Peace be with you. Thank you.